You are listening to the Thundercling Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> Just rippling abs. How are we going to get fucking sponsored by these guys if we can't even get the name right? Did you say you're doing wrestling moves? Oh god, I'm bleeding. Jason Kale's walking around on stilts. It's fucked up. I'm looking for a drummer who will double as my driver. Hi, I'm Dave. Hi, I'm Feedy. And you're listening to the Thundercling Thunder Podcast. Podcast. We- Allergy edition. Whoa. Yeah, that's right. Today <laughs> oh, on the show, man. both hosts are going to hold hands, go outside, roll around in the grass, shove fistful of grass into each other's eyes. I have a dandelion up my butt right now. The person with the most tears and snot rolling out of their face wins a limited edition sock from my drawer of... Pair, socks. Pairless socks. It's, I have a lot of socks. Wow, what a no awesome you can, prize. You can actually see it if you look in my room. I right do. There. I see it right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're both wrecked by allergies. We're other, other than allergies, we're feeling fine. Yeah. But our voices, the one thing that kills you are this. Oh, my God. And this. <coughs> oh. Oh. Mm. So if that happens, we're not going to hit the edit button. No. It's going to be, we want you to see us at our best and our worst. And if you can't handle our worst, then... Dude, this isn't even close to our worst. <laughs> we got a long ways to go, but this is pretty bad. Um, so something a little bit unique. We're going to, we'll try to keep the intro brief, but hang out if you can for one sec, because something interesting is happening with the show. Correct. Petey, can you elucidate on that? Correct, Dave. Today, <laughs> Correct, Dave. Mark's... Essentially, the one-year anniversary of the inception of the Thundercling podcast. One year ago, almost to the day. Picture the setting. My house, my bed, sunlight slowly streaming in through the window, tiny dust particles floating around my nostrils that are allergy-free at this time. Right. My body, half-dressed, maybe not even dressed. Oh, yes. (laughs) Laying there. My phone buzzes. I turn and look, and guess who texts me? Dave McAllister, who I hadn't talked for a little bit. And yeah. guess what I have on my lap here, Dave? No. I have no. the text message you sent me on that fateful no. day. What if it's cocky? It's, I don't remember maybe this it's a at little, all. You were just... First of all, Dave sent me the longest text I think anybody has ever sent me. I'm not even joking. It is probably <laughs> a thousand words. That's so stupid. for your listening pleasure, I'm going to just snip it out parts that are boring oh, and God. keep the juicy bits. Oh, God. So here is Dave's initial text <laughs> inviting me to join as his co-host. It starts off, texting is easier. Dot. Easier than what? <laughs> I don't know. Dude. All right. <laughs> so... I've been contemplating doing a climbing-related podcast since I left Climb Talk to go on the road. Fun fact, Dave was on Climb Talk. You should check it out on YouTube. Lynn even went so far as to get me a podcasting kit for my birthday. I figure I'm not getting any younger in time to do a cool, interesting, fun sort of media thing. Now is the time. Wow, that was so dramatic. (laughs) Also, I know shit all about podcasting. That's still true. And then you talk about putting together a list of guests. You're like, oh my God, we could talk to film artists, coaches, everything. All the other podcasts would be our friends. Oh. We would live in harmony. Yes. Uh, And then you say, the podcast I envision would squarely focus on story slash experience over trip reports slash how hard you climb, etc. I want to hear hilarious, heart-wrenching, thoughtful, shit show, out of the shadows kind of narratives. Stories. Wow. That was a very Dave line. I could just sense the Dave. Sto- was stories its own sentence? Yeah, it was. Oh, it, it was a God. dot, stories dot. All right. And then you wrote like a bajillion examples of stuff that we could talk about, <laughs> which we actually have done kind of a few of, which is really cool. All right, on. And then you say, 
Anyway, I would need a co-host. Someone kind of weird, outgoing, addicted to climbing, technically inclined, willing to prep for interviews, down to totally goof off in front of an in parentheses, tiny at first, dot, 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 maybe national later, question mark, audience. Still question mark. <laughs> Still question mark. <laughs> Not be too scared of famous climbers, and most of all, laid back and friendly and interested in other people's stories. I've literally God. only been thinking about this, but I thought you might like a crack at the ground floor of this puppy as a co-host or involved in any way you'd like. Wow. What do you think? That's how I end it? Yeah, you say, what do you think? Do you have what you wrote back? Oh my shit, I do actually. <laughs> what did you write? I wrote, uh, I wrote, first off, I just want you to know, if you're asking me if I would like to be a co-host, then the answer is a hard yes. Oh God, okay, I don't want to hear it anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's a little cheesy. That's how the love affair we were psyched. began. We were super psyched. So yeah, this puppy started about a year ago, and we're not going to uh, slap ourselves on the ass too many times here. That's yeah. the end of it. That was kind of fun and yeah. super embarrassing for me. So, Thank you. Yeah, it was fun to read that and get into, you know, flashback, you know, nostalgia. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, so it's the one year anniversary. And another thing to commemorate that is today we're going to be releasing the first ever episode we recorded. <laughs> what we ostensibly titled our practice episode. Correct. But... First of all, that is no way to say the interview is not good. No, it's great. It's just we were we were waiting for the right time to drop it. Yeah, yeah, it didn't it wasn't it didn't feel like it fit in and honestly, I think we've had enough episodes out now where, you know, people kind of know what we're about and we're not worried about freaking or I don't know. <laughs> well, the good thing about it is we don't sound like dipshits. Um, but anyway, more importantly, the guy who we interviewed, his name is Tyler Williams, yeah. and he's a super talented youth coach, now uh, head coach in the Minneapolis uh, Bouldering Project. Bouldering Project, right. Yeah. Um, and we talked to him about coaching, about how he inspires his kids to become uh, better athletes and better people. Um we talk a bit about the comp scene, but the most important thing, listen, when I was doing the edit today, I hadn't heard this thing in a year. <laughs> this is so like inspirational and motivational. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're a coach, first of all, stay tuned because this is an amazing podcast yeah. for you. Tyler's one of the best coaches I've ever met. Yeah, he's great with kids. I mean, he came up uh, running summer camps for kids and then discovered climbing and he wanted to make his career with uh, out of helping yeah youth become better athletes and better people and this is also when we were kind of exploring more the idea of i think we still want to do this but having more everyday people on not necessarily just the most famous most pro climbers exactly and tyler super fits that he's like a super passionate climber who has got interesting stories which he shares one of his tyler's got a few close near-death experience stories and he shares this one what? right <laughs> off the bat you're gonna hear an absolute shit show near death climbing experience, related yeah. climbing related story it's yeah. crazy and um yeah i'm so glad tyler was really kind and came on and you yeah, know he put himself to, out there no kidding thanks <laughs> thank you tyler for making us feel at home yeah in a, a place where we hadn't really <laughs> built a homestead yet i gotta be honest i was really psyched that we're we're releasing this because i've been begging dave to let us release it every night i sent him one i sent him the text it says, but not a thousand free. word. It's just a couple. It's just words. a couple words. It says, "Free Tyler." Free Tyler. <laughs> and I say, "Not yet. <laughs> not but yet. Today's the time." So is, yeah. I hope you guys enjoy this one. It's really great. And if you stay till the very end, Tyler will gift you with a freelance wrap. 
Oh my god. <gasps> ah! Oh, Dave, not my eyes. Down in the city with the wind patterns change, blowing around the buildings all tall and I would like to tell it. I'd have to, like, bleep out names and, like, locations <laughs> and, like, workplaces that I was at. Because I don't know how to tell the story without going into, like, what was the craziest summer of my life, like, working at this terrible, terrible summer camp. Why don't you just go into it? Right now? Yeah, just let to us To start? Know. Okay. Please. I would love to hear this story again. Oh, God. Um, okay. Well, I guess it's kind of an interesting segue in that it kind of got me into climbing as a profession. But it also almost killed me. And it was the worst summer of my life. How, so, long, you, how long had you been climbing for at this point? So, that's, that's probably another good segue is that <laughs> I... I was climbing, but in probably like when, when Colorado people or anybody that has climbed for a while, like they would look at me and say, you hadn't even started climbing. But, but relative. in my mind, in the Minnesota scene, yeah. I had guided top ropes. I was a very, oh, very dude. experienced guide Big of fish, setting up pond. top ropes for small children to, to go up and down on. And for me, that that seemed like a big deal. But I didn't know about competition climbing or even bouldering gyms that like, you know, what the V scale was or any of that. All I knew was the Yosemite decimal system and that I thought 510 was was pretty dang hard, hard climbing at that stage. It is hard when you start. Yeah. So that's that's where my mental space was. And I had um, somehow convinced other people who didn't know anything about climbing into hiring me as the rock climbing director of that summer camp. Um, How did you do that? Just because I thought I knew what I was talking about um, because I had been doing it for a couple of years and I had, you know, I did know what I was talking about when it came to like guiding top children, roping. setting up anchors <laughs> on a top rope area. And for me as like a 20 year old kid, that seemed like a big deal, but I didn't know the wide world of climbing that was out there. Yeah. And so that's how I went into that environment and my goal or my job was also to kind of revamp this summer camp because the previous rock climbing director had um, injured some children by not developing redundant <laughs> systems and sent some kids off the zip line. And oh, no. Oh, my God. So that's how I got the job is they, they just needed somebody that was going to be safe. And I was a safe guy. I that's had, a pretty low bar, dude. It's a real <laughs> guy shooting dudes <laughs> off a zip line. It's like, we need to find somebody else. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And anyway, so then I got <laughs> the job. Literally anyone can do better. <laughs> And it was, yeah, it was an interesting summer. It was kind of like every week there was like a, a, like an ending of a, a, a reality TV show episode, like, you know, kind of cliffhanger. And either somebody got fired or somebody was, you know, quit in a terrible manner. But I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to fast forward that entire story. No, is this, wait, is no, this no, like a, a summer camp with like archery and canoeing oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. and i was I in charge you. of just the rock climbing portion of that and that you're on real walls not like um so in this summer camp so prior to that i was on real walls guiding in minnesota but this summer camp was in california so i, I went out oh. to be the the director of basically their high ropes and summer camp uh, uh sorry uh rock climbing walls and and so anyway my my basic uh, responsibility was to revamp like the redundancy standards of how they just operate so that an accredited organization can come by and say, Hey, we, we believe in this summer camp again, you know? And so Gosh. where was this? This Well, I don't want to, I don't know if I want to get so into specific it was, it was somewhere in California, somewhere in California. Were the kids um, okay? 
The kids, not the ones that fucking got zipped off the zipline. No, they were not okay. But when I took terrible. over, they were all okay. They did a great job. Don't worry, Timmy. The zipline's safe. Yeah. So. Don't be afraid of the zipline. No, Timmy. The zipline. No one ever gets hurt on zipline, Timmy. Yeah, but the end of the summer camp. Oh man, I don't know whether to go into go, individual just stories go into it. or not. Yeah, let's go. Man. Don't don't. Let's nothing go is okay. off limits. Here. All right. So it was just like, um, kind of a weird summer camp in that it was. Predominantly, it was like uh, served a population of kids from like Richmond. Oh man, I can't say specific things. Blur that out later. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, Richmond, Oakland, like that population and like the kids that were coming there were awesome. It was like their safe haven. It was like super, super important to them. Like everybody in there was just like um, basically got there through a scholarship program of some sort. And so, um, I mean, and it was, they, these kids were like coming from rough neighborhoods for sure. And I really connected to the kids. I didn't really connect to the upper like management so much. And they, they had a tendency to, uh, kind of think they knew what was best because they were also brand new Mm -hmm. um, because of similar issues with the previous upper management of the summer camp. So they were coming in from a uh, a completely different socioeconomic camp, um, thinking that they knew like how to turn this place around. Mm. And anyway, so every week, some of the counselors and like the counselors all, you know, came up through this environment. So like what the, the management team deemed appropriate from week to week, um, they were holding these guys, the, the counselors, the kids, everybody to these standards that were appropriate, maybe in like, you know, really privileged white, you know, upper class summer camp. And it just was a totally different ball game in this mm-hmm. camp that we were at. So anyway, it was just like an interesting, um, every week you either had a counselor getting fired, you had a, uh, a <laughs> like a riot on, you know, in staff. Like it was just like, I mean, like. It was a revolt, like the whole summer. It was a growing long. experience. It was a growing experience. Yeah. And by the end of it, I was like emotionally exhausted. <laughs> and I <laughs> had at this point and like, I don't know. How old were these kids? Like 12? Uh, anywhere from eight, like to basically junior counselors, which would be 17, 18. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was crazy. Like every week something would happen. And I, I had a blast working with the kids, but just trying to understand like this um, management teams like direction for this program. I mean, they were obsessed with like Disney, Walt Disney productions and like Ooh, making it a, like a play. And like these kids were used to like hip hop, like dances and stuff every week. And so it's just like, they try to change the whole camp and it, it ended up really getting, um, bad towards the end. And the kids kind of revolted. And, um, one of my best friends got fired and for what, um, I don't know if I should say. You don't have to say. All right. But anyway, she got fired and I was trying to cheer her up by basically taking her to this place in um, kind of a beautiful part of uh, the one. Um, So it was like on the beach there. And I I was just, she was like super bummed because it was the first job she had ever gotten fired from. And I had like tried to cheer up basically by just goofing off and like started free soloing up this cliff face. Okay. Um, and, I and it's got just on. you two. It's just us two. And, and then, um, well, we had one other person there as well. Um, but yeah, it was like the three of us. And um, one person was like really good friend of mine. The other person hadn't gotten fired, but was also very upset with the whole situation. Um, so we were just there kind of goofing off and just like talking about how crazy the summer was. 
And then all of a sudden, what did the rock look like? It didn't look good. I mean, with a man of, of my current expertise, oh, would have oh, said, yeah. don't ever do that. Don't ever go up that. But <laughs> young I, Tyler, young, stupid Tyler went up that. And, um, it quickly became apparent that like, this was like really, really chossy sandstone that was just like breaking as I was climbing it. And it's and a beach cliff. It's a beach cliff. So yeah. I got about 15, 20 feet up and I was like in that point where like I could have just jumped off and I would have been fine. And I was still like kind of being goofy. Um, but it was like a 60 foot cliff and I was looking down at the jump and I just like chickened out. Like, and I looked at like how easy the climbing looked going up and I was like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Way to I'm going to top that's this out. To it's going to be like good cred, you know, like <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this and I start climbing and it just, I ended up kind of going around a corner and into a dihedral and above me, I mean, this is after like 50, 60 feet of climbing above me is this just like moss pile. So it's just like grass and moss. So there's literally no way I can like, unless I want to down climb or somehow like grab onto just loose grass and try to like top that out. There's no way I can really send it or top it Iowa climbing. It was nasty. (laughs) So, Anyway, I basically get into a stemming position, kind of facing the crowd, and I'm like realizing that I can't down climb because the like every time I try to like, you know, down climb, the rock is falling apart as I'm like moving my foot back down. So I'm in this stemming position, and my left foot and my right foot are on these like two little just divots in the wall. And every time I lift it up, a little bit of like a little bit of sand just like falls out <laughs> underneath my toe. Yeah. And so I what point, what point at this, were you just like, I've made a terrible mistake. And how high are you at that? Yeah, are you at like I'm 55 like 50, feet, 50 feet or so oh now? God. And um, oh I'm God. realizing like, okay, I, at first I thought I'm going to get into this dihedral and I'm just going to like figure out a way to like, you know, send this, but I did not see the top of it. All I saw was like this corner and it looked, it was super easy climbing into this dihedral and I couldn't exit. And I'm also like kind of panicking, like as soon as I get into that situation, cause I was like, oh, this is easy climbing. I'm flowing. And then all of a sudden I'm in a, like a thinking position yeah, like, and I like have to kind of reassess myself. And, um, I'm like <laughs> looking down at my friends. <laughs> Fucking hands are sweating. Yeah, and I realized like, oh like I have to tell my friends to go get help. And, <laughs> We're on the one and my, my friends are down at the bottom of the cliff and they have been since I was like at 30 feet, they've been yelling at me like to come down, but they don't, they don't climb at all. And so part of like their view of me was like, oh, he'll just figure it out. You know, he's always climbing weird stuff. And I think like when I started to tell them to like go get help, that's when they like realized, oh my God, this is a terrible situation. And so one of them went and got a farmer down the road. Um, the other oh one stayed with me. And, a and fa- you're, hold on one second. Let me, <sighs> I'm gonna, let me hit the rewind yeah, Dave, button. Dave, could, yeah. could you demonstrate the position? Are you please? like starfished mm-hmm. in a dihedral? Yeah, no handholds, no like sandy, basically just sandy like rock. slopey little foot, footholds. No that, ledge. No ledge. Oh my I'm just God. sitting there and, um, I'm already, I've already got Elvis legs by the time <laughs> I'm like talking to them. And I'm like, can you guys please go get help? And, and you couldn't down climb. I, I probably maybe theoretically could have, um, but it was so chossy, but it was very chossy. And you know, when you're like down climbing, you're like waiting handholds more and there's oh, like, yeah. it's just more difficult. And I also, I think I was kind of petrified of fear at that stage. And mm-hmm. I was like, the only thing I can do is like stay still. And like the only like kind of, um, 
confidence I could muster to make any movement was like just to lift my foot up a little bit and then I put it back on the same foot chip and I'd like shake it out and then a little bit of dirt would like fall away and I'm like all right I'm gonna die hey guys uh hey not to freak you guys out but uh can you go get help because I'm going to die yeah exactly and I I've told this story to my parents um and at this point like they were absolutely you know super super pissed but also I think like that was the moment where I knew like I'm going to I'm going to probably die at this moment and that was a crazy just realization and I I thought I only have like four more minutes of being up here before I'm like going to just fall over and I'm just going to plummet and I probably wouldn't have died I probably just would have gotten kind of hurt because it was really sandy down there so I probably would have been okay. Uh, maybe a couple broken legs. Yeah, depending on how we land, who knows. But essentially, um, the the farmer came over with, with my friend, um, and they were all kind of looking at me, and they had said that they had called the, the police and that the police were coming. Oh, this and is so, all great news for you. Kind, kind of, I guess. <laughs> but the police did show up, and I would remember thinking, like, all right, something's going to happen here. But... The police showed up and the guy just, the, the cop just came up to me and he was like, hey, uh, all right, just, you know, stay calm, don't move. And I'm, that's like the advice that he had for me. And I'm like, okay, I can definitely uh, like thank do you, that sir. for a little thank bit you, longer, but not much longer. And I tried to convey to him like that I'm like getting tired mm-hmm. and that Excuse me, sir, do you see happen. these jiggly legs? Yeah, but he didn't, he... Nobody knows what that means. He was really calm and like maybe... It actually unnerved me how calm he was. But anyway, he he didn't really do anything. Um, and then slow, like slowly I hear this like helicopter noise and there's a helicopter coming to rescue me. And I'm like, okay, wow, now something's like really going to happen. But this is after like 15 minutes and I'm, I'm like definitely freaking out. And so how like, long have you been in the, on the wall at this point? On the wall for about like, well, I don't know about the climbing, but probably like 17 minutes or something like that. 18 minutes. I don't know. But was, yeah. Was yeah. time going very slowly for you? Yeah, definitely. And <laughs> also there was people stopping on the one and like taking, oh, no. pictures, taking pictures of me. So this helicopter though <laughs> is like approaching and I'm hearing these like freaking super intense wings and like, or like the chopper noise and everything. And I'm getting there, uh, I mean, I'm looking at it and it's getting closer to me. And then I'm starting to realize that like, there's a lot of wind being generated by this helicopter (laughs) and it's starting to lower. And I'm realizing like, this thing's gonna whip me off. Like it is an insane amount of wind. And I was just yelling down to the cops and to the like helicopter, like, no, no, bad idea, no. What was the plan for the helicopter? Like I never to drop a I never figured it out because very shortly after that, also a fire truck showed up and they ended up pulling the fire truck over onto the farmland above the cliff. Mm -hmm. And uh, a guy got in, you know, just harnessed up and basically like repelled off of the fire truck over my head. And I didn't know any of this was happening um, because I was like blind to it. So I don't know, maybe the helicopter was just there and like in the case uh, of yeah, an emergency him, or something yeah. or helping him to spot or something. Um, so I don't entirely off know, the cliff. but it was terrifying. And then all of a sudden this like firefighter guy just like jumps over and he straps me to himself in a harness and he lowers me to the ground. And they literally just dismissed me and they're like, you know, hey, it's your lucky day. And my that was friends it. and I went and just got wasted and we just, you know, 
had a celebration night. Well, you had a near-death experience. I I thought for sure that I would have to pay for the helicopter yeah. Or, yeah. or something, but n- nothing. They just were like, apparently this happens all the time, and they're just like, you know, <laughs> be smarter next time, and like hope you hope you learn your lesson. And they sent and they me just on my took way. off. Yeah, was the farmer still there? Yeah, the farmer was still there. I got to. He's know, like, man, what are you, you doing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why are you up there? <laughs> Yeah, it was a wild end to the to the summer of of craziness, summer of hell. What yeah. um true climax. How many years ago was that? Mm, I think 2012, 2012, 2011 maybe. So how do you think about that? Like how how is your thinking of that changed through the years? Like uh, at the time were you like, "Oh my god, I could have died." Or were you like, "Well, that's a close call. That was pretty sweet though." No, I was no. definitely like I should have died there. Like I don't know how I stayed up on the wall that long and I thought for sure like I had flashbacks of like all these things that I wish I would have said to all these people and like all Holy these crap. different so it was like, like a legit. Yeah, I was like, "Dang, like stakes are high, short. man." Yeah. But, you know, I guess do you now no longer have fear of highballs? No, I have. I think that's contributed to my fear of highballs. Actually, ah, I think so. Yeah, that's the way that works, man. I, I think I'm scarred in that way, for sure. But I and I've also fallen off the top of a, a highball and broken my heel as well. Separate ah. story. But you know who's broken a lot of bones? Dave. Dave right. might have a superpower, and it is breaking his own bones. Eighteen and counting. Wow. Mm. Dang. That's really lucky guy. That's seventeen more than me. Yeah. He really prefers to break the the legs if he can. If I can break my legs on a really big highball, that's what makes me the most like the most pleased. Yeah, what was it like coming up as a climber in Minnesota? Like how do you discover that? Mm. Well, I think it it's been a slow road. Um Were you an athlete in high school and all that good yeah, stuff? Yeah, like I grew up playing basketball and basketball is definitely like my my sport of choice and I, I basically had my my entire childhood was basketball Mm -hmm. um and then climbing just didn't didn't occur until i started working at a summer camp and there was these like two australian dudes who basically just looked looked like the craziest dudes you've ever seen and and they rock climbed and like everybody loved them and i was like yeah this i just want to hang out these guys and they showed me you know just like basically top roping and i thought it was the coolest thing ever is just top roping in in taylor's falls and devil's lake and all these like places in the midwest and and it took a really really long time for me to realize like the potential of climbing and where climbing was and like all i knew was that there was people like chris sharma that like climbed (sighs) over water and like we we showed king lines to every group of campers that we we had and like they got super psyched yeah but there's really like very little mention of grades in the movie king lines and you don't really like i don't know it was kind of a cool entry in that i it, it really was like Chris Sharma's um, idea of just like climbing for yourself that like kind of got me psyched. Yeah, that's and one of the first climbing movies I saw too. Yeah, it's and he he's talks about like these beautiful, inspiring lines, and that's like literally what I was seeking out, but on top rope and about five, <laughs> five eight, five nine. So it was just funny how like that was that was the intro, and it took a really long time to get to like. 
I, I then went through a bunch of summer camps, that crazy summer camp experience we just talked about. And then I started like kind of directing summer camps. And then I started working at a climbing gym because I was tired of living like basically just on a summer camps property. And mm-hmm. I was tired of just like not being in a city and just being away from everybody all the time. And so I started working at um, a local gym in Minnesota and um, slowly worked my way up to start coaching there and then slowly worked my way up to being the head coach of their youth climbing team. And then I climbed there for, I mean, like I was doing that fairly well and I was really enjoying it, but I, I definitely like was not experienced enough for the job. And so one of my goals was to move to Colorado and just be, get more indoctrinated into the scene and just Mm -hmm. kind of understand how to coach better. And so then I, I, found out that movement was hiring and then I went out How long have you been in Colorado now? So four years and now moving back to the sweet state of Minnesota. Had you been to uh, Colorado before? Oh, you'd been to California though, climbing there. Yeah, a little bit. I had like climbed at like Castle Rock in California and some of the places in, in California. And I was like probably like a V4, V5 climber and just like kind of enjoying myself at that Mm -hmm. stage. And, um, but my main focus probably always has been like the youth development side of things and just like working with kids and watching like when I first really got psyched it was always because you just put a kid on a rope and do some top roping and if the kid's terrified of heights like you just see a transformation just by them like trying a challenge and it's a much more visceral change and a visceral like transformation than you know even when you see like you know, you or I or anybody Mm -hmm. like send their project, you know, like for them, like just getting to the top of a wall is a huge, huge deal. And that's like how I definitely got into it. And like seeing that over and over again and in like high ropes courses was definitely like the intro into kind of, uh, I want to do this for a living. I want to like, like help kids and watch that transformation over and over again. Um, and I've noticed it almost less, um, in competition climbing, but it's, it's a different kind of um, achievement. It's more of like a dedication and a focus and like this long-term thing that you watch and you like see these kids like basically work super hard and cultivate like their personalities and like become new, you know, members of the climbing communities instead of just like that initial like entry-level climber climbs to the top of the wall. They're both incredible experiences, but one's Mm -hmm. like a little bit less like, you know, an intense emotion, but like a longer view of, of their careers and watch them like grow up. And so that's yeah. really cool. Um, but I've always been fascinated with like the youth development side. And, and I did realize like I had like a severe lacking in my own climbing like skill and I had to come to Colorado to like sort of assess that out. And I've learned a lot out here, but I still think like, you know, you can always learn way more than I need to. But yeah, that's kind of the long story of how I got to where I am and now it's time to move back. So in your thought, does it take, what kind of skill set does it take to be, to like succeed at coaching? Do you have to be a crusher? Um, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think it's like good to not be a crusher. I think it, being a crusher definitely helps for mm-hmm. sure. Like the kids look up to the, yeah, the you get that the, currency. Yeah, for sure. But I also think like that's never, I've never claimed to be like the, the strongest climber out there. <laughs> I've always claimed to be, um, really good at, at working with kids and, and a good, um, 
mentor of kids. Um, and I've always surrounded myself with really strong climbers. Um, and my, my coaching staff has always been really, really, really strong climbers. And I let them, you know, take the lead when it comes to, you know, specific beta on the 12 v 13 climbs or whatever and you know i'm i'm definitely very good at working with the younger kids to like get them up to par um mm -hmm. but they i have experienced the situation of my kids getting stronger than me i was just gonna ask about any... that <laughs> what's <laughs> it like to have like a 12 year old pulling through a v11 mm. and like do you feel like man i can't coach this kid anymore or do you feel like I can still fine tune the mental approach and blah, blah, blah? Yeah. I mean, I think you can always, um, like you, you get better at seeing what's possible for, for kids and, and your kids, like you get to know them and you get to know like, okay, they're holding back a little or they need mm -hmm. to be pushed in certain ways. Um, but I do think, you know, having experience on the routes that they're trying is really beneficial. Um, but it's not, it's not entirely like, you know, you have to do that. Like you, I've had, um, coaches that I've worked with that, you know, aren't strong at all and have been great coaches cause mm -hmm. they can just empathize and they, they understand movement. But I do think like setting roots has really helped me to at least be able to visualize like, you know, really hard grades and then working with really, really strong people like our movement, you know, staff of route setters is really strong and just, and then also coaching. I've, I've now coached really, really strong kids that have have you know been to nationals been to you've had some podium yeah we've had really really good success and i think um that's that's a testament to you know really like everyone not i don't take much credit for it i think like what i bring is like the programming standpoint and like feeder programs knowing how to like instill confidence in like a gym um gym's program and like being on top of it with when it comes to admin duties and all that mm -hmm. which is a lot more work than it, it sounds like um <laughs> yeah the hidden I, side of coaching yeah and Some like the emails i think that's like a lot of gyms maybe should utilize like having someone that's that's just focused on that kind of like a program management manager like a team manager i guess and then having like you know your your um maybe lead coach be someone that's literally done it so like we had i mean i was just with um the kids as kind of my farewell trip with john cardwell and he's you know he's a five 15 climber yeah, crusher. yeah he's a beast and so it was like you know i think in a lot of ways we balance each other out and like jimmy was there as well and like jimmy redus the head coach of boulder yeah when so, did that happen when did he become head coach oh good I just question i think i don't know five years ago or something Legend, like that dude yeah. he used to be a big setter right yeah well. and he's he was like the first uh nationally accredited setter in like the united states so yeah that I guy's mean, a legend those two have taught me so much and so like i don't you know, I, I think like if I spent more time, I could probably get stronger, but I think like right, right now, my biggest resource is like what I've already kind of developed in youth developing, uh, youth development and kind of like that side of things. And then there's so many strong crushers that have literally been through it from youth D all the way to, you know, being a podium climber themselves that are great to have on your staff as well. And I think that model is something that like, even, you know, Team ABC is always like, yeah, they have Robin who's been through everything, but they also try mm -hmm. to have like, you know, Alex Puccio for a while. They've had like, you know, Megan Martin, they've had a, a Garrett, you know, all of those guys are, are super strong as well. And so mm -hmm. it's good to have, um, you know, climbers that the kids look up to and relate to on your staff. And that, that cannot be like, you can't, you can't deny that. Um, but I do think, 
Um, it's also super important to have people that can keep the program afloat yeah. from an administrative <laughs> standpoint. How many, how many coaches, you know, end up staying in a coaching position for like long-term career? Cause it seems like it's potentially a career path with. Yeah. I think it's becoming that way. I think it's one of those things that, um, is growing with the climbing industry. So right now is like a, a real turning point where you are starting to see some coaches getting paid um, for what they are what they are doing, um, and and gyms starting to realize that youth programs are actually like profitable and can be a really positive um, part of of the gym. Um, so I think it's similar in root setting. You know, like you're starting to see root setters that are really getting invested in, and same with coaches. Um, it's a little f- further behind coaching or um, root setting. But I do think, you know, the most successful programs in, in the country are definitely the ones that have had a head coach um, that has been consistent and been there for the longest. So, well, your skill set probably just keeps growing along with the programs, like the longer you're there. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's helpful to be at a, <laughs> to be at a gym that's like, you know, got a ton of resources and it's been a bummer to like leave movement. But um in the Minnesota scene, it's going to be nice to like come back and kind of be able to share some knowledge of what I've You're going to be like a beast at that gym now when you go back, aren't you? You have it. You have a job lined up. I don't yet. I don't know. I don't want to like say specifics right now about jobs or anything. Cause I'm, I'm in the hunt, right? I'm in the thick of it right now, but we'll see. Um, but I would like to like carry on coaching and stuff. Um, God, coming from movement should Minnesota. be like no problem. That's a good resume builder. Uh, yeah, there's not as much of a market, obviously. Like yeah. Denver's like a huge climbing mecca, and and so that's that's one part of it. But I do think like, yeah, it's going to be easier to at least like apply my knowledge. Well, what's crazy is the amount it's grown in Denver. Like when I moved here four years ago, there was like the the theater gym was like the only Denver based climbing gym that otherwise you had to go to rock and jam in. Oh, thrill seekers, thrill seekers. Yeah. And now there's like six gyms. I know. I know. They're all crazy. They all probably are going to have youth teams. Yeah. It's going to blow up. I mean that coupled with like the Olympics. I mean, I was going to ask about that. It is a, it's a, a total, like we are on the bubble of, of climbing. Yeah. We already think like climbing is exploding, but it's going to explode even more. Yeah. I mean, it's a great way to invest in like you're investing in the future in the sense that you're creating like climbers that are going to climb at your gym, but you're also like, you're bringing their whole families in. So like you're getting their brother and their sister, their mom, their dad, like everybody is coming Mm -hmm. to your gym and it's like a great feeder for like all your other programs. It's really like, I, I mean, I look at it as like, there is the tangible, like how much money the team programs are bringing in, but there's also the intangibles of what it, you know, what it says to like support a youth climbing team in a program. And that's a huge aspect that, you know, I think owners should definitely be looking at like really kind of being, um, you know, investing in that because it's going to come back and benefit you, your community by creating like stronger climbers. I mean, that's what we're seeing in Minnesota. Like I, I keep running into like all my former kids that I coached in Minnesota and they are so freaking strong right now. Like this <laughs> dude, like I, I ran into my, um, one of my kids, Isaac Duncan in 10 sleep. And he's just get, he's, uh, he was working on this five fourteen. I think A or B or whatever, but he, he did all the moves and he's just a complete badass. And I was just like watching him like, wow, this guy, he's like a, an adult now. And he's like, and just he was one beast. of your kids. Yeah. How does that feel? 
I mean, it was really cool just to run into him for one. Cause I've, he was like one of the loudest personalities, like one of the, the kids I'll never forget in Minnesota. And then just to see him like randomly, like by himself in 10 sleep, like just kind of doing the dirt bag climber, but also like in school and like working on stuff really hard, um, up in Fort Collins. It was, it was sick to like, just watch him like just put this thing to work. And then to watch like John Cardwell jump on the same problem and like not flash it and like kind of struggle with it. And it was that like, brings it was it in pretty, perspective. I was like, wow. But I wanted to ask a question about the kids. So when you hear like Tommy Caldwell talk, who's obviously naturally talented, but he'll be the first person to tell you that everything he's achieved is because of his work ethic. So you have these, you, I kind of see there are two groups of kids that come to a youth program. There are the kids that don't have much natural talent, but they have a lot of work ethic. And then there are the kids who naturally are wildly talented and don't have to work so hard. And they can like fall into a kind of a slacker mindset because they've never had to work for what they get. How, how do you um, kind of divert the road and teach both of those kids to achieve their full potential. Like the kid that doesn't have a lot of natural talent that is just like wet clay. And then the kid with a ton of natural talent, but maybe takes it for granted. Yeah. I mean, I think you kind of hit it on the nose with like, um, the work, work ethic is super important. And like, mm -hmm. even the kids that have natural ability, you know, they, they only, they're only going to go as far as their work ethic takes them. Like they, they can be really, really incredible natural climbers, but at a certain point they're going to hit a plateau and the yeah. hard work will like push them past that. And a lot of times I think like even the ones that are gifted naturally, like they're still putting in hard work. They just don't perceive it as hard work. You know, like they're uh. still doing hard stuff and hard things on the wall. Um, but they just are having fun with it. And so I think the key is like to reward verbally, like the hard work that they've done. So like, if you see them like do some crazy double dyno or, you know, you know, triple clutch or something like that, instead of just being like, Oh my God, you're amazing. Like, you, like that's <laughs> I how, wish like, people would say that to you me. Know, like, but like really highlighting like the work that they've like, you have been putting work into mm -hmm. learning how to do coordination moves like for weeks and weeks. And that was that coming to fruition, you know, that's like separating kind of like who they are and their climbing, um, from like their work ethic and like make, making them understand that like it was, it was the, the work that they put in that got them there. Even if it came easier than, yeah. you know, another kid had to put into it. Um, it still highlights like, okay, that, that, that I just did, it wasn't a natural ability. It was like something that has been an accumulation of skills that I've, I've gained through working on stuff. You yeah. Know? So it's like, it's a, I think it's super important to just, you know, take kind of these fixed ideas about yourself and like kind of break those down. Like if, if you, if you, and same goes with the opposite, you know, like if you have a kid that nothing comes easy to him you know, maybe something that's holding him back is this fixed mindset of like, nothing comes easy to me, you know? So it's like, maybe he's just, maybe that's what you have to break down and you, you still reward like the hard work and effort, but maybe he has a, a self-limiting kind of thought about himself of like, I'll never be as good as that kid. That's a natural. You do know? you sit those kids down and yeah, talk absolutely. to them and like, what, what do you say to a kid like that? Cause oh, I mean, I think we've all been there unless, you know, you are Tommy Caldwell. I mean, we've all struggled yeah. breaking plateaus or just climbing to what we perceive as our, our, our ability. So how do you, a kid who's more than like self-doubt and like, oh, I don't have the talent to do this. Yeah. What do you say to that? 
I mean, I no. think you, you can say stuff to them, but I think it's like more uh, beneficial to create like a culture around like a safe place to try hard and fail. You know, like yes. if, if you got like a whole team that's willing to like work on their weaknesses and like be kind of vulnerable um, by failing in front of like a whole group, um, it's, it's super beneficial. You see the kids like understand that it's okay to give a hundred percent effort and fail. Cause the most oh, often thing that I see is like you, you have kids that just give 60% and then have an excuse ready because mm -hmm. it's attached to their ego. And mm -hmm. so like if you can instead create kind of an environment where it's totally all about just trying hard a hundred percent. And if you fail and you just like look like an idiot, well, good, good on you. Cause you're giving everything. Yeah. yeah. Like in that so moment, painful when people are like, yeah. shut you down for trying and then it just creates that shell totally it, i mean and you see it with everybody like i mean we do it to each other like <laughs> i mean but like if you're like <laughs> just ragging on somebody like there you can see the fear or the hesitation like in certain people to like try something you know like yeah for sure if you create like a really safe space like it's it's a different it's a different energy like sometimes you know um you can go too far in that direction and like make it like you know, kind of hand-holding, but, and, and kind of, you know, everything's okay. Everything that you try is fine. But like, there is a level in which like you can create a culture around, as long as you're giving me everything. And like, that's fully like understood by the kids that you're coaching or, or even your peer group. Like, I think that's where it kind of, you get that like perfect little happy place of like everybody trying hard and being okay to fail in front of each other. And you see, like I, I see that with like even like the, the Japanese team that came to movement to climb, like that's where- They just crushed the youth world cup. Yeah, they crush yeah. everything. It's amazing. <laughs> but I think that's a huge part of their team is like, they just seem to be okay with like failing in front of each other. And like they maintain a positive vibe and they, they seem to work on their weaknesses. They, I mean, I'm basically making these assumptions on like every year, once a year, they come and practice at <laughs> movement. So I don't really know exactly what they're doing, but the they're one doing thing something I, right. they're doing something right. And the one thing I've noticed is like when you get a ton of pro climbers in a room and they all have to climb on the same stuff, like in front of a large group of people, like there's a little bit of ego involved and like certain people yeah. trying certain things and certain people trying, you know, to kind of hide their weaknesses or, or make up an excuse of, of not trying as hard as they possibly can and being okay to just flail if it's, it's something that's in their anti-style. And I didn't see that at all from the Japanese team. And I don't know what to make of that, but I've, I've definitely yeah. like tried to talk to the, the kids that I coach about what I did see, which was like what looked like a really playful spirit of them, like all kind of making up problems, just supporting each other and trying ridiculous ridiculous moves and falling a lot but also you know trying stuff that no one else was trying no one mm. no one else was even willing to try it does your coaching transfer to the way that you climb yourself like do you have an inner monologue where like you're talking to your own little kid who's like struggling up his problem meaning yeah. do you like follow the rules that you set for your kids i try i try to my best but i will say like I mean, no one's perfect. And like the kids that I coach, they need to be constantly reminded. And so like, I'm trying to constantly remind myself as well, but it is hard, you know, like there's definitely, <laughs> I mean, I'm not perfect by any means. There's moments where I'm like totally, uh, you know, skirt a challenge or like, just like mm -hmm. not do something because I'm afraid of failure in, in a group of people like that I respect or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that happens to everybody. 
but I do think like it create like as long as you're aware of it and you can like kind of go through a debrief with yourself afterwards and be like, oh man, yeah, today I totally like kind of whisked out on like the top out of this one move because I was like afraid of, you know, falling in front of my friends or something mm-hmm. like that. Like as long as you can acknowledge it, then it's just like a long term kind of progression. And like, you know, I think that's um, one of the the best pieces of advice that I've ever gotten was we actually had uh, Paul Robinson come down to our, our um, and talk with our youth team. And he was saying that the number one thing that he tries to focus on is just like um, highlighting one thing that was progress in his session. So like, even if like, I mean, and he talked about boulders that he's been trying for years, but he would come back and just be trying one move over and over and over again. And so he had to, um, talk to himself about like, okay, that session, I got like half a centimeter Mm -hmm. closer to sticking this holder. My hips were like in a better position or felt a little bit better. And like those micro goals are super important because you can walk away and you don't have to attach like your entire Mm self-worth to like, oh man, I made a fool of myself. You can say like, yeah, but at least I like, I tried it, you know, like maybe I made a fool of myself, but I tried it in front of people or, you know, you're just making like, as long as you're making positive steps forward, um, I think that's Yeah, if your mentality is, I either do this thing or I failed, like you're just going to get so discouraged all the time because you fall a lot in climbing. (laughs) Just hearing that, it's like, fuck, it gets me psyched. Like it's inspirational. Like, okay. Yeah my hand was an inch closer to wrapping around that crimp and it was two inches last time. Ah, oh, it makes me psyched to fail. Yeah. And I think and that, also someday be a good climber. Well, that energy is <laughs> contagious. Like you say that to your Blair, like if you're on a, like a rope climb or something and you're like psyched because of some progress you made, you know, that's a different story than like if you're, in your head thinking, wow, I've been up here for a long time. Oh, my Blair like wants to go, oh, like, oh, I should really try to do this move. Like, oh, but it's so hard. Like, I don't know, maybe I should just come down. Like, that's a totally different story you're telling yeah. in your mind. So if you're like focusing on like small progress, like your Blair is going to be psyched. Like you are going to be psyched. You're going to come down. You're going to want to go back to the project. If you like end that session and you're like, man, ah, oh, that was embarrassing. You know, yeah. then it's like, you don't even want to go back to the project. You don't want, like, you're not cultivating an environment that's like, um, you know, positive or supportive, you're, you're cultivating like this pressure. Like that's all yeah. you're building is like more and more pressure to either like send or not send or impress your friends or all that. And that's like, man, that's, that is climbing in a nutshell. It's like in my mind, like w- one of the things I used to focus on a lot is like all the training components of climbing, but every you know year you realize like how much m- mental, crap is in you like impeding you from your goals and also like helping you with your goals when you figure stuff out it's like always in your mind you know yeah and when you figure out that your thoughts of failure are contingent upon who is watching you or who is paying attention to you man that's like a poisonous seed to plant in your head you know what i mean but like the really great climbers, they just use that. They shift everything right. to positive, you know, like if they have a bunch of people watching them, then like, like Justin Shang's always talking about like swagger and like putting on a show and like, yes, so that's a really great, good way of just taking what would be pressure and just like put, turning it on its head and just then using this as like, yeah, I'm going to perform right now. And like people yeah. are going to be psyched. Justin says to all of his kids, he says, when you're if you're afraid of the boulder problem or the sport route or whatever in a competition, as soon as you stand up off your chair 
walk with like intention. Exactly yeah. what you said. Walk with swagger, regardless of how you feel. Because hopefully that can imbibe you with a feeling of success. Yeah, totally. It's I think building a culture. Yeah, like kids, sometimes that's hard for kids, but you know, it's something that just practice and continuing to like harp on. It's always going to um, benefit you if you can kind of cultivate like the idea that you are going to at least put on a good show, you know? Yeah. Like just give everything that you got. It's better than making an excuse. <laughs> Damn it. I'm really good at ex- I'm a V10 excuse maker. <laughs> at least. Yeah. It's called being pragmatic. It is being pragmatic. You got to have some excuses in your back pocket, you know, just in case. Dude, I, I think the know. hardest thing about when I'm trying to climb my best is like when someone's just being toxic almost where. What do you mean? When you're projecting something and there's someone with you and the only thing they can talk about is how the conditions aren't good how they're they're tired that like this is all bullshit just the toe hurts much, like pretty much digging and like for what why are you why are you like it's not helping anything yeah exactly i mean I, i've definitely been guilty of it for sure me too but at the same time it, like once you're there like if you're talking about that, it's just preventing you from doing the climb. You know, like if your mindset is in that, like, oh man, if yeah. only this hold was, you know, a little bit bigger or 10 degrees colder or yeah. something like that, then it's like, you know, that, that all that is just completely unnecessary and worthless at that moment. At that moment. <laughs> but how would, I have a question for both of you guys then. How would you, if your climbing partner, who you like and respect and they're your climbing partner for a reason. You want to climb with them and they're bringing that kind of poisonous attitude to the crag. How do you confront that in like uh, a friendly, positive way? Because it's happened to all of us and we've been on both sides of it. So how yeah. do you nip that in the bud without being confrontational? Well, I think like you could be confrontational in the sense that you could like, you could confront the prom- problem directly. But I think like actually a lot of really good climbers just have the ability to like not let anything phase them and can use that as even a challenge for yeah. themselves to still <laughs> climb their best. You know? so positive. Oh, so, so positive. Like, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it's possible. Like, again, like all this has definitely happened to me and I've been dragged down into the same, like sometimes you're just with a partner that's, that's like complaining about conditions. And then all of a sudden you're complaining about conditions. Yeah, and then all of a sudden you. it's like, all right, let's just go home. Yeah. Like, look, at us get dude. a beer, you know, like, screw this yeah it should and be that, three degrees colder <laughs> yeah it's it's definitely like it can be toxic but i think like you, you know like the the really good competitors always just find a way to just flip it on it on their heads and like flip that statement on their heads and just say well man this is even better training it's three deg- degrees warmer like good i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna do this i'm gonna get like i'm gonna train this right now so that when it is like five degrees colder i'm gonna walk it you know like yeah so there's ways to like trick yourself and like just talk to yourself that always kind of at least like put that positive progressive like mindset yeah but it is hard in the moment for sure yeah typically i either ignore it or i i feel like it's pretty it's like hey man at the end of the day we're getting to climb outside right now and we're not like we're, we're out here. It's really nice. Like, 
I feel that I, in trying to bring them onto your team, yeah. you know, as well, being like, dude, check this out. And maybe you stick the hold. Yeah. Uh, the greasy sloper. You're like, see, man, it's you're stronger than I am. If yeah. I can do it, you can do it. Let's go. Come on. And if you can't, so what? <laughs> you know, like try to make it into a team aspect. Team effort. It's a good yeah. idea. Instead of splitting it. Yeah. I think Feedy, I've climbed with Feedy a lot and he does a great job of like making light of situations. So if someone is complaining, like pretty soon, like he's making fun of the person that's complaining, which I think is really great because then it just highlights like their behavior and he has a way of doing it. That's like really positive. So they don't feel ashamed. So they don't feel ashamed. It's just like highlighting it in a, in a kind of a playful way, which is good. I, I, gotta get bladders for I actually have a, a, a question about parents. So, and it's gotta be intense in like Denver and Boulder. I was a, an umpire and a little league coach when I was in college to make extra money. And like the most challenging part of my hard quotes job, my $4 an hour job was to like boot parents yeah. from the stands or kick the coach out. Like you're out, man if he would like come up to me and ruin the experience of the kids. And that coach is somebody's parent yeah. in Little League. Um, does that occur? Do you have to jump over those hurdles as like a climbing coach? Especially here, it's got to be a little intense. I think like um, there that definitely sometimes happens, but I would say that of all the sports that I've ever been involved with, like climbing is like pretty chill when it like comes yeah. to the parents. Like the parents, I think... A lot of times the kids that get into climbing get into climbing for that ex specific reason that like other sports like just they didn't jive with the culture of like i mean when i played um basketball like in aau we'd have like parent fights you know like yeah, benches man. clear where parents are like fighting each other and like in that way like climbing is incredible you know like to compare that to to you know when we go to usac clumps like everybody's cheering for whoever's kid is on the wall which yeah, is pretty yeah. cool. That's awesome. Um, but there's still like, you know, parents want the best for their kids. And so like you, you sometimes deal with like intense parents, but I think like just recognizing that they just want the best for their kids and that you just have to kind of be upfront about your expectations for like your program. Um, like I've always kind of had the idea that, you know, we're going to be a youth development program first. And what that means is like, we're going to teach character above you know, like mm -hmm. results and competition. Um, and you know, if that's not who you are as a parent or who your kid is like, then that's fine. You know, like there's other climb team programs and like, it's not that we'll like kick you out, but like you should just go to another, you know, program and that is more along your values. And like, mm -hmm. I think the key is like not sacrificing your values for like the sake of like one kid or, an, or another. Like if you believe in like, you know, a long-term kind of athletic development model, then you should be cultivating like an, um, an atmosphere where they, they'll learn some life lessons along the way, as opposed to just, you know, a single result, you know, like it, a lot of times it, it, it matters if you, you know, make it to divisionals or, or, you know, nationals. But when kids look back on it, like you talk to adult, you know, competitors, like they don't look back and like, think about, oh, I got divisionals that one time I missed nationals or, or they, you know, they talk about, they don't talk about their results. They talk about like their coaches, the people that they look up to, they talk about, 
you know, the, the experiences that they had, the team trips, they had, they talk about like, you know, their friends that they had, maybe some like pivotal moments of like success or failure come on, come in there. But like, it's usually not like, oh, that one time when we had to do an appeal or we you know, <laughs> yeah. and I barely got in or something like that, it's, because that's all like in the moment rules that like, you know, you get caught up in, but it's, you know, long-term it's, it's not super important. Like you got to do what's right so that you model that for the rest of your program and the rest of like the kids so that they see consistently, like we follow the rules. We're going to be like, you know, the sportsmanship team. And, you know, mm -hmm. if you don't like that, like that's fine. Go, go somewhere else. That's fine. Is, you know, is it worth pointing out too how, uh, the lack of hostility potentially with parents is due to the fact that when the kids are competing, it's not like a, like basketball where it's a team versus a team very actively engaging each other. It's almost an individual sport when you're on the wall, like it's up to you to perform well on this route. Yeah. It's, and so in a way it is almost like everyone just is competing against themselves with the end result kind of just being compared. Yeah. I think that's super beneficial for like teammates for sure. Like it's hard to really, when you're, when you don't, when you have a, a competition result that you don't like, there's only, you can't blame your teammates, you know, you can blame mm -hmm. maybe your, your, yourself, you can blame your coaches, you can blame like, you know, the route setters or whatever, but the, the, it's really a lot easier to talk to, um, competitive kids about like what they can do differently next time, you know, and put it on their, mm -hmm. you know, kind of responsibility. And then on yourself as well as a coach, like it, it, a lot of times it is like, we have to look analytically and be like, did we prepare this kid as best we could? If not, what, what can we do? Yeah. How can we improve? Um, but it, it's definitely something that's, um, I think like pretty chill compared to other yeah. sports, you know, I was going to say, I mean, when you talk about basketball or let's say wrestling because, or tennis, you're on a team, you're still on a team and those athletes when they're in high school or college or in AAU as well, all of their thoughts are like, Oh man, we missed out on substate or, um, and I mean, they're doing individual sports as well. Why don't you think that reflects into climbing as much? I think it, it does. Um, like yeah. the kids are definitely bummed if they don't go to nationals like all their friends or if they don't go to divisionals like all their friends. But I, the, 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 um, the team aspect, like, you know, I think that's in other sports, like you can have a star player that will blame the entire rest of the team, you know, cause they did, <laughs> did their part, you know, and that doesn't happen in climbing. Like if, if you're a star player, like messes up the beta like all they have to think about is like how they can prepare themselves next time and you as a coach you have to think about okay what can we do to prepare them better but you know they're not going to look at their peer group and be like oh this was you guys you know so in that sense it's better but i do think there is still like social pressure to want to go to the next level you know and that that competitive vibe is is definitely like a huge part of the the youth climbing scene and in a way that's that's amazing and it's pushing the sports and we're seeing like youth climbers that are you know crushing you know and will be crushing like the future top level grades of of all disciplines but at the same time you know um i think sometimes when i think about it i think about that first entry level experience of just like getting to the top of the wall and like that's what i think about in those moments and like just how um 
you know, different that experience is for me sometimes. It's paradigm shifting. Yeah. So like, I, I think like it's good to remind them that like they love climbing yeah. and, and that continuous progression from year to year is like what you should really strive for mm-hmm. and that you can't really control, um, you know, competition results. You can work as hard as you can, yeah. but everybody's working as hard as they can, you know, and it gets more and more competitive the higher you get into divisionals and nationals. And I think the more you can kind of prepare them to be able to just no matter what focus on what they can control and what they can improve. I think mm-hmm. that that's like the key, but yeah. it's hard because their whole friend group goes to, you know, nationals. That's the only time they see some of their friends. So they really want to get there and yeah. you want to prepare them. You want them there. It's a good carrot. It be, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's definitely like, you know, they, you want them to accomplish their goals and, that that is um you know it can be really hard when they don't but it also depending on how you debrief it with them it can be like a pivotal moment for them too they can like change as climbers and become better climbers because of it i i guess my question for you is it seems like a lot of youth kids who start climbing they get burnt out um and don't even enjoy climbing post the competitive scene so do you guys at your team like I guess you kind of explained it almost that you you encourage sort of the pursuit of self-improvement versus the results, which is probably what causes kids to burn out. Yeah. I mean, I think that particular, like that can be both. Like that can be a kid is burnt out because they're not improving anymore. And that can be a kid that's like just sick of pressure and sick of like, so there's a lot of like instances of that. So I'm like, I don't want to just say like, oh, if everybody just adopted like a more chill mindset, like we wouldn't have burnout. We, we still would. Like if the, the reality is if they're not having fun, then they might quit, you know? And for some kids, fun looks totally different than other kids. Like some kids are on our team for the social dynamic, you know, the, because all their friends are and they don't care at all about competitions. Yeah. Some of the kids are on our team specifically for competition results. And if they don't get those results, then they will stop climbing. So like, oh, I think man. like burnout is, is like oftentimes ascribed from like the training component and like overtraining and like, it's, but it can also just be like burnout because it stopped being fun and they stopped being able to hang out with their friends or, or it could be burnout because they're, yeah, they're like pushed too hard. So it's really just like looking at, you know, what, individuals need and and then maybe like helping them on an individual basis to be more prepared and and accomplish their goals but also like just having the kids understand and buy into the culture that you're trying to create and so for a while we our culture was like you know we didn't require competitions we were solely focused on just progression from session to session um but then our kids got really good and they started competing and so then they wanted to com- competitive success and so then our, our program goals started to shift and mm-hmm. they became more competitive based goals and then it, that's also appropriate but i think like to answer your question like um to prevent burnout it's there's a lot of factors and it's not just overtraining, but it can be and that's something you have to monitor and i think the best way to monitor it is just to Make sure that you know, um, you know, f- what you're doing from uh, curriculum development, but also like talking to them about what they're doing in their off time and their how they're handling like their rest days and all that. I mean, there's so much that goes into, you know, just helping the kids to optimally perform. But I, I think like 
yeah, it's not just overtraining. It can Seems also to be, be stopping, <clears throat> stopping having fun. External pressure too. I think of two examples and I'm pretty old, so maybe I'll be out of your, <laughs> out of your wheelhouse here, but you guys remember Tori Allen? You ever heard of her? Yeah, that sounds very familiar. Huge competitor, um, young, strong, and uh, she burned out. I think she went to Indiana for pole vaulting and left climbing behind Katie Brown is another one who mm-hmm. competitions just burn her out. I think that had to do a lot with like the pressure of success. Yeah. So do you talk to your kids about, um, I mean, we, we talked about fear of failure, but there's also a fear of success and that can be crippling. Yeah. They can stop you from trying. Totally. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, we have talked to certain kids about, about that because they have like, they have this um, expectation for themselves on like what they should accomplish because they're the strongest, like, you know, fish in their small swimming pool, you mm-hmm. know? And so I think that's a lot of, you know, part of it is, is realizing that like, you know, success at one level doesn't guarantee success at the next level. And you still have to go back to what made you successful at that first level, which is oftentimes hard work and like yeah. just take nothing for granted and continuing to push harder and harder. Um, because I think you see that even with, you know, the pros, like, you know, are for the longest time, like, you know, you had the people winning nationals in, you know, bouldering and sport in the United States, they'd go to the world level and like get crushed, you know, and that, (laughs) that's, that's probably crippling for their ego, but it could be just looked at as like, well, this is the next stage and now I have to prepare for this next challenge. And so starting from literally square one and like reassessing, like, uh, what are my expectations? You know, what, what am I going to be able to like, uh, and that probably does have like a lot of social pressure part of it. You know, like if yeah. you crush in your local area, like those locals expect you to crush at that. Next exactly level. right. Expectations. Yeah. And so, I mean, I remember like people in Minnesota, there's some like really strong people in Minnesota and we would always encourage them to like go compete at like adult nationals and stuff like that. And like sometimes they never would. And a lot of times that's purely just because like, they like being the you know the big fish in a small pond, and in a lot of ways, there's nothing wrong with that if that's no. your like lifestyle and goals. But at the same time, like you know, if you want to go try the next challenge, you just can't assume anything. You got to like go through you know the ringer. You know, you get you get pummeled, and then you figure it out. I mean, we're, we're starting to see that with Puccio. Like Puccio, for the longest time, didn't really do that great on the World Cup stage, mm-hmm. but now she's having success. And like, that's just because she's been persistent and like really honest with herself about what she's got to work work on from year to year. And, you know, I think that's, that's the thing that it's hard. I, I don't want to make like a big cultural statement, but I think it's hard in America because we don't really want to talk about that. We don't value failure very much. Like, and failure is like the key to learning. You know, you can't learn anything unless you fail at it repeatedly. And that goes literally every aspect of life. Like Donald Trump told me I'm a loser if I fail. Exactly. Yeah. He's the president. Yeah. I mean, if you're the president talking to you, (laughs) I mean, that, what does that say? Um, I think it's definitely important to, um, cultivate a safe space to fail and, and continual improvement doesn't just end it's like you don't like you don't just accomplish like a, a goal and yeah. then you're like okay now i'm i'm done i'm gonna like yeah no, always evolving that's always a weird thing climbers do too with it be like man if i could just climb v10 i'd be 
so happy forever right yeah that's and it's like that's well not real <laughs> it's like you'll do that and then you'll be like well i feel exactly the same as yeah I that'll like, last that glow yeah will last for like 10 minutes and then you're like yeah. one facebook post and yeah. one one Insta- instagram post <laughs> oh sorry yeah we don't do facebook yeah definitely that's what do you th- how do you think they've cultivated that though so i agree with you i wanted to talk about this like in europe in asia there are a lot of differences between our teams and their teams like if you're in Austria. Isn't that where Killian Fischhuber and Anna Storer are from? Okay, so they're they're like a part they're funded by the military to climb. Like they're given money and they're part of the military. And they're fostered, you know. What are the Euros and the Asians doing better than the Americans to just dominate World Cups, which is fully in view right now by results that just landed today. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think I'm, I am not the person to like be the expert on this. I have like some, some opinions, but I think like the, the idea of failure and like really making that a huge piece of like the fun of climbing and just being playful and like failing a lot. I mean, I I have that, those supplemental stories of like watching team Japan train. I've, I've seen like, uh, Udo Newman's like videos of what they do as training. And like, it just seems like really creative challenges that are always being posed and because of that that you know you're constantly taking those climbers and putting them out of their element and exposing them to stuff they're not good at and that's something that like we don't do a lot in america like we we fine-tune stuff that we're good at and we continue to like just get better and better and better at that specific thing and then we have like major areas of neglect you know and that yeah that I think is like a cultural thing that you see across the board. It's you know, super like, intimidating to work on your weaknesses. Yeah. Especially in front of your peer group. Totally. So I think that's probably part of it, but it, it can't like hurt to have like government sponsorship exactly, and like man. living together and just being like supported as like this team environment. Whereas like the U S team, like hardly ever sees each other until like these like one training camps that they'll have every now and then. Um, and so I think, you know, that really helps to cultivate that culture and that environment to like be with each other all the time. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, takes a lot of pressure off. Like if you are, you know, able to have a sponsor pay for your ability to compete at every world cup, you know, like if that's, if that's just built in, then, you know, it's, it's, you're able to fail more freely. Whereas if you have like, Mm -hmm started a Kickstarter or something exactly. to like fucking crowdfunding the, right. your yeah. trips. Like and that's you're a lot of pressure. Best boulderer in America <laughs> well, for Alex Puccio. And she's crowdfunding yeah. to get to wherever. Yeah. I mean, it must ah, be daunting so... if you're a youth kid and you're pretty good and you think about, oh, I want to compete on a world stage, but that sort of means like you're sort of on your own. And it's such a small percentage of people who can really make it into a living it pursuing it so yeah i don't know i mean it's interesting like i think on one end you kind of want to tell that kid like make sure you have a backup plan Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) but (laughs) then if you do if you do it's like you're you're yeah you're stifling a dream um but i also think like you know on the positive end of that like the climbing industry is becoming more um you know professionalized and I think sponsors are starting to realize that same like message of like, you know, maybe sponsors can step up and like support 
their athletes to go to these World Cups. And, you know, if, if you're a company like Black Diamond sending their athletes off, think of how many people are going to be knocking on your door. The yeah. best young climbers in America are going to be knocking on your door to be a part of your team. Plus, I think they got to realize that the the youth are getting huge. Like like every gym has a huge youth program. And those youth, the, the only celebrity climbers they know are those comp climbers. So like to them, they are idols. So if you want all those youth kids looking at Puccio or Ashima or whoever um, – and buying the same shoes like that's that's a return right there is like just yes it's, it's what nike did with jordan that's exactly know? right kids are so impressionable and i'm not trying to use that as some sort of tool <laughs> but they are you yeah. know nike used it to great success with jordan you yeah. know multi-billion dollar shoe line right it's interesting because like, like this is the start of it and like i'm having this conversation in full support of those athletes and then like my basketball experience is like, wow, but look at what it did to basketball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> same token, like in the same sentence. But what did it do basketball? I mean, just like that's that's a complete opposite. Like AAU kids are getting like signed to deals, shoe deals. Yeah. Of, like, you know, oh, man, 12, 13. So that I mean, but maybe that's kind of already happening with. Uh, it's Ashima kind of did it happen in ho- it's been happening in hockey for like three decades. Yeah, yeah. Kids going off when they're 14 years old to join a program, you know, and live away from home and go to school in that community. Right. Yeah. It's weird. My bizarre transition into being a head coach, because part of the reason that I got into like being a head coach at a climbing gym was like to kind of distance myself from like how insane and intense, like, you know, the, the basketball world is, um, with sponsorships and all that. But then now I'm like advocating for like a lot of the stuff that the basketball already has and has, has done successfully. But I think like that's just because it's inevitable. It's going to happen. So I just want to see the people that like I know be supported and like the kind of do it in a healthy way yeah. for the community and just climbers, climbers are, are inherently, I think like, um, a little bit apprehensive about like going too overboard in that direction. So yeah. like even just a little bit of steps that way, I think would really go a long ways to like support the athletes. And then you, you can, you know, stop when it gets ridiculous. And all, I mean, if you don't like it, who gives a shit? Don't pay attention. Exactly. Do, do you know what I mean? I mean, climber climbing is an iconoclastic sport. If you don't want to like follow sponsored climbers or the climbing comp scene, don't dude pick up your rack and go climbing. It's exactly. Not that, it's not that big a deal. Yeah. Let this be. There's no sense getting angry about it. No, it's sure. just a different aspect. <laughs> you know, it's not comp climbing has, in my opinion, has nothing to do with the feeling and the emotion and the joy of climbing outdoors with your buddies and getting 12 pitches up and on a Sunday. You know what I mean? Right. It's wild how like much it's grown in the last like four years and how it's going to grow though. I mean, I've, I thought I keep saying that we're in the baby steps, but like it's kind of, you're starting to see some bigger steps right now. Yeah. You can just look, um, speaking like locally, provincially in Denver. When I moved here in 2000, there was rocking and jamming and paradise and thrill seekers. And now, how many gyms are there? There's the two movements. There's a um, two a DBCs. Spot, a spots opening. Two DBCs. There is a Earth Treks, and that's already 
in like that area. That's just, just Denver yeah. metro area. And that's not to say the two the two rocking and jammins. Yep. The lifetime right fitnesses with mm-hmm. that have walls like literally and teams. Yeah. When in two thousand, if like or in ninety eight when I started climbing, if I would have seen a lifetime fitness wall, I would have literally shit my pants. I just been like, oh my! I, I started yeah. climbing, and and so did you, Feedy, in a freaking uh, racquetball court, a transition Fun racquetball fact, court. That rapid racquetball court, I walked into that, and I had been used to because when I was younger, I was climbing at a gym in California. I've been used to kind of like a place that looked like rocking and jamming, like a touchstone gym. Yeah, yeah, like it looked like had walls and stuff. I walked into that racquetball court and immediately <laughs> turned around and left. No. Yeah, and it was like one of my biggest regrets because this was back in they they demolished that in 2010. I did that back in 2008. This is the University of Iowa. University of Iowa climbing gym was a refashioned <laughs> racquetball court. I walked in there and, and it was, was like, like mind blowingly awesome when you're just yeah. like this Iowa guy. See what sucks is now I know that what the culture is like and like the people were awesome and I have such regret. But at yeah. the time I was just like a new climber who was like these are this is like 20 foot walls like you can't climb in here i'd been climbing for like five months before i even knew that that gym existed i didn't even really know what a gym was yep i I had no idea it was just like top roping and then kind of leading at wild iowa and then it's like oh you got to go to the racquetball court i was like what the fuck man i'm not gonna slap (laughs) around a little blue ball what are you talking about Oh, it's a gym. Oh, it's a, oh. Sick. Uh, there's ropes on that. That sounds amazing. Those like, like bouldering walls. Twenty two feet. Oh, sign me up. Ooh, and the the crushed tire ground. Mm. Oh yeah, the shredded tire. Shredded tire is. I remember waking up in the middle of the night and just pulling shredded tire out of my ass. <laughs> How did it get in there? It's just because you sit. <laughs> you sit on the ground and you know it's full of shredded tire and it just weasels its way into your underwear. Oh you my know? god! I would. That's. I'm proud of you. Yeah, it's it's a common thing with shredded tire. That's why it's. Man, I can't believe they got rid of it. It was so. It awesome. gives you a black butt. Yeah. Black you, butt. Also, a fun little thing to do with shredded tires, oh. like just dig around in there until you find like, you know, you somebody's wedding rings or yeah. You can whatever. get really deep into it too. Just yeah. bury yourself. I mean, because kids are always burying themselves into the shredded tire, but... You can actually find children in the shredded deep tire enough, gyms. Deep enough, correct. Yeah. correct. They're way, yeah. way down there. Kids are yes. generally like uh-huh. on the third level well, down. It's pretty common that they just... You find them a couple months later and... Some some learn to survive the harsh environment of the rubber Usually tire. Usually they're still alive. <laughs> the harsh environment of the rubber tire. Yeah. If I had to lean one way... I'd probably lean left Cause social injustice Don't give my respect now Some say my heart It's bleeding out of my chest if I, I, I have some I was once lost In the Iowa City Climbing Gym yeah. For like three and a half weeks I was buried yep. Under the rubber tires I remember this when I was coming up in Did you scene, hear about would, this story? They would say, dude fucking watch out man i built a ton i built a I little place down there like i it had a little fireplace where mm-hmm. i would burn the rubber i remember that which might have something to do with my allergies right now and i would like cook i would like there were what's, toenail clippings down there that i would eat what's funny is some people still say you can hear the cries of a of a grown-ass man screaming probably slightly bald yeah no i had a lot of hair at that time oh yeah very well haired <laughs> in the gyms but that was a really 
that was a really introspective part of my life when I was buried yeah. down there. I, <clears throat> I'm going to hit you with a, a heavy question. Dave. Okay. When you sent that text, you said you seem to have been in a moment of serious retrospection on your life yes. and how much time you had left. Yes. And- I don't think it's long. <laughs> <laughs> what brought about that? Like impetus? Uh, wow. That's a kind of a heavy question that we didn't prepare for at all. I'm blindsiding you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, well, I'd been, I've written a little bit and I was, I, you know, I did the climb talk radio show for about five years. And the biggest thing I missed from that, especially when I was on the road and I, you know, I was supporting myself with writing, but I was telling a lot of like my own stories. Oh Jesus. Just like I'm doing right now. It's terrible. Um, And I really, really missed having a platform to share, excuse me, to share other people's stories. Mm -hmm. Like on Climb Talk, we had a new guest every week and it was just so much fun to give them space to tell a unique story. Yeah. And I was like, all of a sudden it hit me when I got back off the road, how much like I was missing that I wasn't sitting around campfires every night or sitting in a van or a a pull behind listening to people's stories. I was just in Denver, like climbing and working. And I was missing that outlet of hearing other people's amazing, like adventures, hearing about their adventures. So I thought the fuck man, (laughs) podcasts are like the lower back tattoo of our generation. Everybody has one Uh and maybe they'll be embarrassed of it at some point, but Let's get a lower back tattoo, baby. Let's do a podcast. And I, I just wanted that outlet again. And it's been super fulfilling so far. Yeah, and I wanted to keep going for years and years and years until we get tired of it and or until we can sell it for $5 million, which we've had offers for. Yeah, me, yeah. yeah that's right, guys. Yeah, <laughs> that is. <laughs> it's false. Anyway, that's cool. that's what it stemmed from. Yeah, it was, a, it was very serendipitous timing. I remember when you texted me because I had been... I've always kind of enjoyed you know, conversations with my friends and for my own personal, uh, archives, I would sometimes record conversations with people cause you forget like what you say yeah, and they're fun to listen back to. So I was, oh, I'd always been like, oh man, it'd be fun to do some kind of podcast. And then you, not that long after I was like really feeling that you messaged me. And here we are, here we are a year later. <clears throat> it's weird. A year, a lot happened. I'm always psyched to be here because I tell Dave this sometimes, but a lot of the times you get involved with projects with people. Oh, uh, they just fall apart. And they kind of like, they have momentum. And then for whatever reason, it wasn't all, it wasn't like meant to be. <laughs> it just falls apart. That's not going to happen. And here. that didn't happen here. Yeah, buddy. So, so anyways, that's the story of Thundercling. That's a little bit of uh, retrospection here. And, history. And so thank you, Tyler, for being our <laughs> Tyler, guinea pig and you. an amazing, amazing guest. Yes. And I hope you're doing great out there in Minneapolis. Yeah. And, uh, and I hope you guys enjoyed this episode a year later after this sucker was spawned. Yeah. If you want to get a hold of us, as always, please shoot us anything you yeah. want to say. If you have a question, a comment, a criticism, if you want to write for Thundercling, um, if you want to share photos, whatever you want to do, get a hold of us at thunderclingpodcast at gmail.com mm-hmm. or Instagram, man. The Thundercling, the Thundercling. at Instagram. Yeah. Not- IM us anytime. Yeah. We, uh, we reply to everything we get. And I think that's yeah. We're done to chat. I want to say uh, thank you to 
I, I'm not going to lie. I spend some time every now and then searching the web for any hits on Thundercling. And I've a few you people. Creeper, dude. I do. I creep on herself. But I've been psyched because uh, I occasionally find hits and it's always people I have no idea who they are, you know, kindly recommending the Thundercling and oh, saying they enjoy it. And I just want to well, say we thank you for that. Shout outs. Y'all are super awesome. And uh, you're our hope friends. You keep listening. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> Get a hold of us. I pray and I promise we won't sound like this ne- next e- yeah. episode. Um, it's bad. It's, it's, uh, emotional? <laughs> I, I can talk anymore. I wish it was only emotional. Um, and then finally, well, stick around oh. for about 30 more seconds. And it's not our usual outro song. That's you right. sons of bitches, you sons of you're bitches in for a you big freaking yeah, gift. Yeah, you guys thought it was going to be Dave's voice. No, it isn't mine this time. It's somebody else's. <laughs> you're going to love it. Okay. Well, see you in two weeks. Oh. Say goodbye, Feedy. Bye. Eardrum. <laughs> oh, it's just gonna okay. bust out the fucking real instrument.